tonight? Amen. Going through the book of Galatians. And we're going to look at tonight a lot of things, but you kind of, when you're going through Galatians, you kind of have to pick something for a title because there's so many possibles. But now are we the sons of God? And that is wonderful. So let's pray together that God will open our eyes tonight and illuminate us. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the Word of God. And Lord, that it transforms us and renews our mind, that it changes us and builds our faith. And Lord, you said the truth would set us free. So Lord, give us your truth tonight. Set us free from legalism. Set us free from unnecessary rules and regulations. And help us to walk that walk of faith in the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name. Now will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me. And I receive your word. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. Get ready. All right. Now we go through books. I got to tell you, um, I like Wednesday nights almost more than the weekends because there is a, there's just a real, a, a real knowledge crisis, I think, in a lot of areas, including the church, sort of an um, ignorance crisis. And when I say ignorance, I don't mean stupid. I mean ignorant as in unlearned or uninformed. We need to know our Bibles. And so I want you to know the Bible. I want you to be educated when it comes to your Bible. The more you know, the more you know Jesus, the more you can answer skeptics, the more that you can successfully walk with God. There is a connection between what you know and your level of maturity and the success of your walk. So we're going to look at tonight, it's, it's kind of, it's legalese a little bit because Paul is dealing with the Galatian church that had been invaded by Judaizers. And as you know, if you've been here with us these last few weeks, the Judaizers were those who insisted you had to mix works with faith, works with the, the simple grace that Paul preached. It, it was his song. He was always talking about, for we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, but it's a gift of God. 100% gift. We're saved by a gift. It's a gift. Not one thing did we do to get saved. It's a gift. Christmas time, we ought to get that. We don't have to earn what's under the tree. At least I hope not. Whatever we open up, it's a gift because somebody wanted to gift us. All right. Now, last time we looked at the Abrahamic covenant and we saw that the blessing of Abraham is what, everybody? Read it with me. Salvation through faith. The blessing of Abraham is not wealth. Now, God will bless some people with wealth, but it's not accurate to say that God wants everybody wealthy. As a matter of fact, if you go to a lot of the world today, they think you are wealthy. Wealth is relative. There are people that would think immediately you were very rich. So when you go saying, well, God wants everybody to be a millionaire or multimillionaire, that's not what Paul meant when he said the blessing of Abraham is ours, even though Abraham was wealthy. He meant salvation through faith. That's the blessing of Abraham. Now, we are his children when we look to God by faith for our salvation. 
Now, Paul closes out chapter 3 with the glorious truth of our salvation. Let's read it together, can we? For you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. How did you become a son of God? In who? Now, notice there's nothing about works there. Not anything about what a good person you were or how you earned part of your salvation. But we are sons of God through faith, period, in Christ Jesus. Now, interestingly, the the word for sons is huios, and it refers to believers as the legitimate offspring of God with reference to origin and nature, including our relationship to the Father. We are now sons of God and, of course, daughters of God. Paul is contrasting between the condition of an adolescent who is still under the restraints and the restrictions of the Mosaic law and the believer's emancipation by virtue of his sonship in Christ. Now, who says Paul would want to go back to the old bondage of the law? Now, this is what the Galatians were being tempted to do, and they had swallowed the bait. They had begun to believe these Judaizers and to turn on their apostle. And these Judaizers were undermining Paul, criticizing him, saying, hey, hey, what are you doing putting so much credence in this guy? Because he's not telling you the whole truth. You've got to mix some works, some Old Testament law with your faith or you won't be saved. Rules and regulations, circumcision, things like that, or you're not going to be saved. But Paul says, why in the world would you want to go back to that old bondage, that which held you for so long? It would be like an adult returning to sucking his thumb. Now, if I see a little baby sucking his thumb during church, I don't think a thing of it. But if I see you, I know something's wrong. There comes a point where you put the thumb down, right? Now, what Paul's going to be showing us here in this chapter is that when Jesus came, we put the thumb down. And we ceased being a child under the instruction of the law. And we came into faith. Now, we'll see that in just a minute. Now, next Paul mentions baptism in a whole new light. Look what he says in verse 27. Uh, He says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, if you read Paul's teachings... Of course, two-thirds of the New Testament. He's always saying this, put off the old man, put on the new man. Put off the old man, put on Christ. Put on love. He's always talking about putting on, like you're getting dressed. It's, it's something you do. It's like putting on clothing, putting on a jacket. Put on Jesus. And here he says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, keep in mind that water baptism is very significant. Some of you need to be water baptized. Some of you chicken out the morning we go to do it. And you you tell us you're going to be there and you're not. And I'm thrashing you right now with a wet noodle. You need to be there. Some of my ushers like that because we prepare for all these people and then a few show up. I don't know where you go. Maybe you don't want to be on camera. We'll turn the camera off when you go under. But... It's very important. Now, it's the outward expression of an inward experience. That's what water baptism is. Outward expression of an inward experience. By standing in the waters of baptism, the believer is confessing. Read this with me, everybody. When Christ died, I died. Do you believe that? 
That's what you're confessing when you get water baptized. All right? You're standing in the, in the waters of baptism. You're about to go under, and you say, when Christ died, I died. I participated in his death on Calvary's cross. Pastor, how could that be? I'm in the 21st century. That was 21 centuries ago. God can do that. The old song that says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Answers in the affirmative, you were there. I was there. Hitler was there. Mussolini was there. Every person that ever lived was there because Jesus took your sin, my sin, all of our sins and bore it on the cross. Every one of us. So were we there? Yes. In God's way of thinking and viewing, yes, we were. We were there. I participated in his death. Say, well, I didn't have anything to do with his death. Your sin drove those spikes in just like mine did. I participated in his death. I, I hate that, but I'm glad he did it. My sin. If you want to see the ugliness of sin, look at Jesus on the cross. Look at Jesus on the cross. Beaten beyond recognition, hanging there, gasping for breath, dying. You want to see the, the ugliness of sin, the horrific nature of sin? Look at Jesus on the cross. We put him there. Every human being put him there. He died not only for me, but also as me. I am identified with his death. Every Christian needs to understand this. I am identified with his death. The believer, once you're standing there in that water, now the believer is then immersed in the water as the word baptizo so clearly implies. Thus he proclaims his burial with Christ. When you go in that water and you are immersed, that's what baptizo means, not to be sprinkled, but to be immersed. When you are immersed in that water, it is a picture of you being buried with Christ. You're buried with him. He is put completely out of sight beneath the water. When we baptize people, they go all the way in. Then we have them quote the Lord's Prayer, then we bring them out. No, I'm... I said that to a woman one time. She took me real seriously. I, I was just kidding with her before I put her under. Uh, now, you're gonna, I'm going to quote the Lord's Prayer, and then I'm bringing you out. She said, what? Said, I'm just kidding. All right. <laughs> you got to have fun in this thing, folks. You, you do. Now, it, but somebody being baptized is put completely out of sight beneath the water as Jesus was put out of sight in the tomb. Thus, the believer is buried figuratively in a watery grave. That's the idea behind water baptism. But he is not left there. He's raised up from the water by the power of another's arm. Come up. Come up. What did God do when Jesus was lying in that tomb, dead as any man ever was dead? Jesus, or God put his hand, arm in there and said, Come up. Get up, son. And he raised him from the dead. Thus, he, the person being baptized proclaims pictorially, say it with me, when Christ arose, I arose. Now that's water baptism. When Christ arose, I arose. So you, you, you're, you're dead to your old life and you're living now for a new life and in a new life, in the power of a new life. You've been raised from the dead, literally, because you were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1 tells us that. Now, I now stand in him on resurrection ground. We all do. Uh, I live in him. I'm identified with him in his resurrection. 
I live on the other side of death to walk in newness of life. Do all of you understand that's where you are? Hello, come on. Give me an amen. Better than that. I want, I want to know if you got this because you're, you're no longer in that old life. You're dead to your old life. Buried with him by baptism into his death is what we say when we baptize people. Buried with him by baptism into his death and raised to walk in the newness of life. And your old life is left down there in that water. Now, when all is said and done, it's only a picture of a greater spiritual reality we're talking about. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the believer is placed in Christ. Baptizo, baptized, fully immersed into Christ. This is the mystical relationship. Paul speaks of elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where he writes these words. For by one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, and we have all been made to drink into one spirit. Isn't that good? One. So there's not a bunch of different churches. There's one. The Holy Spirit puts, immerses the believer in Christ and Christ into the believer. Paul's point is that the law, the law, he's telling the Galatians, he's saying, hello, folks, wake up. Is anybody home? Listen, the law could do no such thing. You, you, why would you want to go back to that Old Testament law? Because in the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit did sometimes inspire people. Uh, they knew at times what it was to be empowered by the Spirit, like Samson, Gideon. We could go through and David, when he killed the lion and the bear, the Holy Spirit empowered him empowered Samson, the mighty man. He didn't do that by, in the natural. He did that by the power of God. They had the Holy Spirit come upon them for some great task. Old Testament people experienced that, but nobody in Old Testament times ever knew what it was to be baptized by the Holy Spirit to become a member of the mystical body of Christ. It was totally foreign to them. They were waiting for Jesus to come looking down the tunnel of time, longing for what they had heard promised and predicted. But they didn't taste it. They didn't experience it. It said these all died in faith, not having received the promise. But we got blessed because we are post-death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So we got to experience the Holy Spirit coming into our life and taking us and baptizing us into his body and into Jesus. The beauty of this is that instead of vainly trying to be righteous by clothing oneself in the law, we in the New Testament have put on Christ. You don't know how blessed you are. I hope to open your eyes to see how blessed you are. Some of you have no idea. You're just Christian, and that's all. You know, you're Christian, going to heaven one day. There's a lot for you right now between here and heaven in Christ, okay? Now, that means that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And he is satisfied because he sees Christ's righteousness, not ours. I always say it this way. God puts on sunglasses. We put on sunglasses to shield from the sun. He puts on S-O-N glasses. And he sees us through sunglasses. And those sunglasses are tinted red. And you put on sunglasses, all you're going to see is whatever color those lenses are. When God puts on uh, sunglasses, when you get saved, as far as you're concerned, he's wearing sunglasses. And he looks at you and he sees red. 
the blood. And he says, righteous, justified, sanctified, glorified. That's what he sees. Now, this truth about what Jesus did for us also confers or speaks about or points to a new fellowship. He says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Now read the last part with me, would you? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. You're equal. There's no social status. There's no higher pedigree. There's nobody better than another. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Gone forever, Paul is telling the Galatians, was the old Jewish monopoly on the things of God. The baptism of the Spirit into Christ sweeps away all the old entrenched differences where the Jews would walk around looking down on the Gentiles. The Gentiles uh, resented the Jews. There was this huge division. But he's, he's telling them that Jesus swept all that away. Jesus took care of all of that, removed it. In Christ, everybody is equal. There is not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There is only a church filled with born-again, blood-washed, spirit-baptized, called-out ones. That's all there is. And some of you are going to be real surprised who you see in heaven. Because you thought some of those people in those other denominations, some of them weren't going to make it because of where they were. Like some of our Church of Christ friends are going to be shocked to see some Baptists up there. And some of the uh, Assemblies of God might be real shocked to see some of the Catholics up there who managed to embrace Christ, though they were in the Catholic Church. In other words, there's going to be a lot of shock in heaven. You're going to be shocked about some people that made it, and you're going to be shocked about some that you just knew were going to be there, and yet, they're not. All you need to worry about is, are you going to be there? And washed in the blood, you will be. Now... There is no longer male or female. In Jesus' day, women were discriminated against. It was really bad, ladies. Listen, uh, here's the fact. Devout rabbis would awaken daily to thank God they had not been born a woman. I'm serious, thank God. I'm not born. They would. I'm just telling you what history tells us. Do you know that that's the world Jesus was born into? Heavy discrimination against women. That's why I'm telling you, the Lord Jesus emancipated and ennobled womanhood. Here's what I want to tell you. This is why modern-day feminists should adore Jesus Christ. Gloria Steinem ought to adore Jesus Christ. Bella Abzug, now some of these names you may not know, but they are some of the hardcore early feminist leaders, and they ought to adore Jesus Christ. If they really mean that they want to be treated equally, he blazed the trail to treat women equally. You ought to love him, ladies, just because of the way he treated women. He was the woman's greatest champion. All you ladies ought to give Jesus a hand. You really should. <laughs> He'd be right there with you, wanting equal pay for an equal job. But more than that, he didn't allow women to be devalued. He put them on the same level, same value, same importance as men. What Paul is telling us is there's not a black church and a white church. There's not a brown church and a yellow church. There's not a red church, Chinese church, Korean church. Uh, we, we should not be separated. We should not be divided. 
We should not be all, all meeting in one meeting because of the, uh, or in one building because of the color of our skin. Paul wouldn't understand that. He said, no, if, if I stick any of you with a needle, you all bleed red. You're all important to God. You have the same value. Racism can't exist at the foot of the cross. Discrimination against women can't exist at the foot of the cross. All the churches in the world, if they're blood-bought and they believe in Jesus Christ, we are one. There may be a different name out there, but we are one in him. And when the rapture happens, we're all going out of our different buildings up. Period. (sighs) Finally, there awaits us a new future. Verse 29 says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And you are what, everyone? Heirs, according to what? The promise. Now, last time we talked about the seed, capital S, and it's a singular in the original language. Remember that? How many of you were not here? Okay, most of you are here. We talked about the seed, where Paul talked about the seed being Christ. And when he used that word in verse 16 of chapter 3, he's talking about a singular seed, the same seed that... Uh, was referred to in Genesis when God said the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the devil. He's talking to the devil. And he says the the seed of the woman is going to bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Way back, that's the first prophecy in the Bible. God predicting that Jesus Christ would be on a cross and that Satan would bruise him in the heel. Amazing, uncanny, unbelievable, yet believable because it's God. And he said, this seed, singular, capital S, is going to bruise your head. Now that seed showed up again in Genesis 12, where God told Abraham, a seed is coming out of your descendants, singular, capital S. And he was talking about Messiah, talking about Redeemer. So when we say here, besides the seed, Christ, that he mentions earlier in verse 16, who is Christ, there are three other types of seed related to Abraham. First, he was to have a seed that God compared to the sand of the sea in number. That's Genesis 22, verse 17. Now, what was that talking about? It referred to his natural posterity, the descendants of Isaac and Jacob, the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, to whom God made many great and precious promises. These promises that he made to his seed, the Jewish people, were connected with a land and look forward to a coming millennial age when Jerusalem will be the messianic capital of the world under the rulership of Christ himself. Do you know what's going to happen one day? Jesus is coming back. And in the millennium, which is a thousand-year time span, he's going to rule the world from Jerusalem. So you really believe that, Pastor Jeff? Of course I do. Same Bible that gave me John 3.16 tells me that. Of course it's going to happen. Well, I just have trouble believing that. Well, hang on. You don't have to fully believe it. If you're saved, just hang on. You'll see it. And that's when the lion will lay down with the lamb. 
That's when they will beat their swords into plowshares. That's when peace will cover the earth. And Messiah will rule out of Jerusalem. It's coming. It's right around the corner. It's right around the corner. Now, so that seed, the Jewish people, God told Abraham, you're going to have a land, and it's the holy land. And so in that promise to Abraham, that plural seed, all of his descendants, that they would possess a land. They've never fully possessed it, but they will fully possess it when he returns. For the first time ever, they will fully possess every square foot of the land God gave them when he told Abraham and gave him the promise. Now, but also Abraham was to have a seed likened to the stars of heaven. You read about that in Genesis 15, verse 5. Now that refers to his spiritual seed. Now turn to your neighbor and say, that be you. His spiritual seed. That refers to his spiritual seed. It's a seed made up of all those who are linked with Abraham as the father of all them that do what? That believe. Okay? This vast multitude is Abraham's spiritual posterity. And this is where the church comes in. We as the church are Abraham's heirs and will inherit all the spiritual blessings made good by God to all those who exercise the faith in Christ Jesus that Abraham did. So when did Abraham believe in Jesus? Well, I'm going to give you a good example. When he laid his son on that altar, and God had said, now I want you to sacrifice Isaac, your only son. I mean, God knew exactly what he was doing. What a picture of the Christ, the Messiah, when he would come. It was, it was a foreshadowing, a, a type, a shadow of what was going to happen later with Jesus. And so he said, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And so for three days, they journeyed to that mount. And when they got to the mount, or on the way to the mount, here's little Isaac, the love of his life, saying, Dad, what's all this wood for? And why are we going where we're going? What are you doing? I'm going to tell you that, man, Abraham struggled. It was breaking his heart. He did not understand. For decades, he had believed God for this boy. He was a supernatural son in that he was born of an old man and an old woman who were physiologically, sexually dead. And now God is saying, sacrifice him? you got to be kidding me. What? He laid him down. He said, I trust God. Now, here's what Galatians tells us. Galatians says that Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead. Abraham lifted that knife, saying to himself in his heart, if this go, if, if, once he's dead, I believe God can raise him from the dead. That's the faith every Christian has, that God raised Jesus from the dead. So he had the same faith in the same resurrection power that you and I have. And thank God, he raised the knife right about here, right when he was about to bring it down. God said, stop. And there was a ram caught in the thicket just over yonder. And that became the sacrifice. But he received Isaac back as a type of a resurrected man. That's what Galatians tells us. Now, Paul again is showing the utter folly of the Judaizers who ranted or wanted to put believers back under the law of Moses. He said, this is crazy. We're the seed of Abraham. The law has nothing to do with us at all 
in terms of providing our inheritance. The the law did not give us any inheritance. Now, in chapter 4, Paul's theme is that it is a great thing to be the seed of Abraham, but it's an even greater thing to be a son of God. The apostle is going to mention three things in chapter 4. First, he's going to talk to the Galatians about their birthright as sons of God. Then he's going to talk to them of their betrayal of the truth they were, had been taught. And then he's going to talk to them about their bondage. But let's look now at the birthright, verses 1 through 7. First, when addressing their birthright, he shows them the difference between a, being a minor and being mature, being a child and being an adult. Now, last time we saw that Paul shows the law in its role as a taskmaster, a schoolmaster, a prison guard, and a chaperone. He's now going to compare the law to a legal guardian. Now, watch this carefully. Under the old law, the believer was a ward of the state, so to speak. His property and his inheritance were in the care of another until he reached a certain age. All of this has changed in Christ. Here is Paul's analogy. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave. Now he's talking about a child who has wealthy parents, and he's waiting for an inheritance. He's an heir. He's waiting for, to reach a certain age. And once he reaches that age... He's going to receive all of this wealth his parents have left for him as an heir of the family. Now, as long as he's a child waiting for this inheritance to come down to him, he does not differ, Paul says, from a slave, though he is master of all. He's the heir, but until he reaches that age where he can come into it, he's just like a slave in the house. He's under guardians. He's under stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Now, under Roman law, let me clarify this a little bit more. An heir was placed under the authority of a tutor. And though his father's inheritance was his, he could not touch it until reaching the age of 25. He just couldn't wait to hit 25. Like some kids can't wait to hit, you know, what is it? You can drink now. 21, 18, it ought to be 50. I believe with every sip, you're increasing your chances of making a bad decision, but that's another topic. Now, um, though his father's inheritance was his, he couldn't touch it until he reached 25, so he was longing to hit 25 because then I'm going to go from a slave to wealthy. I'm going to go from just somebody under tutors and teachers and guardians to my, I'm going to come into my own and I'm going to receive all this wealth. Only then did he come into his full inheritance at 25. Now, here's Paul's analogy. Even though a minor was heir to a noble name, wealth, honor, position, and power, he was the same as a slave under authority until he reached the designated age. Now, here's Paul's application. He says in verse 3, even so we, that means ye, even though we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, the word for children here implies a small child, a child not even old enough to speak. And the law treated people like infants. The law treated those that were raised under it like little children. 
Because everything has to be spelled out for an infant. He, he's got to be told when to go to bed, when to get up, what to eat, what to wear, what not to wear, where to go, where not to go, who to hang around with, who not to hang around with. He, uh, a child is under constant tutelage. Nearly all of its decisions are made for it. That's the way a child, a young child lives. And this beautifully illustrates what purpose the law served, the Mosaic law. It was legalism unchained. The law said, don't do this, don't do that. You must not go here, don't go there or the other place. Do this, do that. You can do only what I say you can do. And that's the way Saul, who later became Paul, that's the way he was raised. And everybody under the Mosaic law was raised that way. It was this huge volume of rules and regulations and can't do's and thou shalt not this and that and the other. The result was spiritual bondage. And infancy was the spiritual state of everybody that was under the law. They were little children. When Paul says they were under the elements of the world, he's referring to those under the law and ruled by legalism. Christ, says the apostle, has freed us from all such man-made rules and regulations. Can everybody say amen? Because watch this. Now, it doesn't mean we can go do whatever we want to do. To be free in Christ does not mean you can do whatever you want. I had a man say to me one time, and he fully meant it. He looked me right in the eye and said he was living in immorality. And he said, but, but Jeff, the Bible says to the pure, all things are pure. And, and so I'm pure. So everything I do is pure. Isn't it funny how we can twist and rationalize what we want to do? We, we can turn the scriptures to enable us to kill, lie, steal, deceive. But as Christians, just because he has set us free from the Mosaic law, from living under that rules and regulations thing, doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. As Christians, we're to master the principles that God has given us in the New Testament, in the teachings of Christ and the apostles. You can start with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you live that, it'll really set you free. Now, the coming of Christ has changed everything. So Paul next focuses on the advent of the Son of God. And I love this next verse. Can you read the first few words with me? But when the fullness of the time had come. Can you say with me, every, God has a timing for everything. Now, say it's perfect. How many of you can agree with me that God's timing is rarely your timing? How many of you thank God that when you just insisted he do something in a certain time period, now you look back and you go, thank God he didn't do it. He had a better time. God has a perfect time. So I love that phrase, the fullness of the time. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, watch this now, born under what? The law that we were just talking about to redeem those who were what? under the law, that we might receive what? The adoption as sons. So Jesus was born under that oppressive law, but he lived it. He never sinned. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Can you imagine living a life where never one time you ever had to say, God, forgive me? Can you imagine that? Never one time having to say, oops, God, forgive me. 
Never one time feeling that shadow of separation pass between you and God because of something you did. That never happened to Jesus. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Why did he do that? So he could redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, let me take you into a little bit of history and just show you what kind of a world that Jesus was born into. Y'all want to learn a little bit tonight? Just want to, I want to educate you a little bit. Let me, let me just show you a few things. The Old Testament chronology of history is like this. The human race lived for 2,000 years under a curse brought by a woman. Then for 2,000 years under a curse brought by the law. Christ has redeemed us from both the curse of the fall and the curse of the law. He's redeemed us from the consequences of the fall. We're forgiven. And he's redeemed us from the curse of the law. We're not under it like that anymore. Now, his advent took place in the fullness of time. Now, obviously, God had been in no hurry. He never is. He moves slowly, but he moves sure. From Adam to Noah, God allowed men to be controlled by conscience the knowledge of good and evil. Remember God said, if you eat of that tree, you're going to have the knowledge of good and evil. Well, they ate of the tree, so they had the knowledge of good and evil. So God allowed uh, the, the future generations for a season to live under the knowledge of good and evil, controlled by their conscience. But it did not work. The result was catastrophic as appalling wickedness covered the globe, resulting in culminating in the flood. Man became so bad, God said, I'm going to wipe the whole world out. After the flood, an age of government was inaugurated with God placing into Noah's hands, after the flood, the sword of capital punishment for capital crime. Now watch this. He told Noah in Genesis 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. You kill a man, you've killed somebody made in the image of God. That's what God said. So these people that sit on death row for 30 years, it's not what God would order. So, well, Pastor, now you're going off into capital punishment. I know. I know. But I'm just showing you what it says here. Now, this age stretched from Noah to Nimrod, when again it climaxed in a further eruption of lawlessness and another massive judgment at the Tower of Babel. The human race scattered far and wide following this confusion of tongues. Remember, they were building that tower. They said, until it reaches into the heavens. Of course, it wasn't going to reach into the heavens, but what was it? It was rebellion against God. Because God had said, I want you to spread throughout the earth and replenish the earth. And they weren't doing it. They had all come together to build this tower, which was a symbol of rebellion against God. So God said, you won't obey me? I'm going to get where you can't understand it. Can you imagine that happening right now? <laughs> I mean, if I was just talking, to, and I'm saying, hand me another brick. We're building this tower. Oh, I can't understand. And what are you going to do? You're finally going to go forget it. And you're going to spread out and replenish the earth. So if you won't obey God, he has a way of making you get there. So they, they 
spread throughout the earth. God judged them at the Tower of Babel. This is all before Genesis 12. And they carried away with them the curse of idolatry as in Nimrod's legacy. Then God broke in again, determined to begin all over again with another man, Abraham, and that starts in Genesis 12. The age of promise began. And God's primary focus became the patriarchal family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what was God doing in Genesis 12, verse 1? He was beginning to work out the plan of salvation he said in Genesis he would do. There would be a bruiser of Satan's head, the seed. So in Genesis 12, he starts by calling Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he focuses on Abram, Abraham later, and his descendants. Now, next followed the migration to Egypt under Joseph and the slow, steady decline of the Hebrew people. Now, they went there, just the family, Jacob with his 12 sons, Joseph the first going, and you know that story. But they became, in 400 years' time, a nation within a nation, and they threatened Pharaoh. So he put them under harder bondage and harder bondage and harder bondage until they cried out for a deliverer and God raised up Moses. And after 400 years, they came out. While they were in Egypt, they compromised with Egypt's gods and they came into slavery under Egypt's government. It's a great picture of the world. Now, the arrival of Moses marked the beginning of a brand new day. Israel was liberated from Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, went into the, went into the uh, wilderness and once again, once they reached the promised land, they degenerated into idolatry. And the dismal story is told in the book of Judges. Now, in response, God gave the law. And he listed a catalog of curses into the law's demands. The human family had failed from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. And now from Genesis 12 on, the Hebrew family also failed. God's people of promise. Why did he raise up the Hebrews? Why did he raise up the Jewish people? To make his name known in the earth. And they failed over and over again. It's easy to trace the sad history of God's chosen people under the law. They degenerated into apostasy and immorality in the days of the judges. They experienced a partial revival under Samuel. Then the dismal failure of King Saul, followed by an era bright with hope under David but it did not last. You know, when you read the Bible, you see that no matter what man tried and no matter how good he did, it never lasted. Over and over again, God showed man, you must have a savior. You've got to have a redeemer. You can't do it on your own. Under Solomon, disastrous policies and horrific compromise with idolatry brought the nation down under God's judgment. Solomon blows me away. We read the Proverbs. I love the Proverbs. Anybody in here like the Proverbs with me? And, and what do we call Solomon? Why Solomon? Why is King Solomon? Why is this man that ever lived? Yet this man, in his later years, connected himself with pagan women. He had a thousand wives. That shows you he lost his mind. <laughs> Seriously, how do you keep a thousand women happy? That's a lot of gifts. Now, all those wives, but they were pagan. And God had warned his people, don't intermarry with pagan people. And that, and that carried over in the New Testament. You ladies, you should never marry an unbeliever. Sir, you should never marry an unbeliever. He said, but I'm in love. Well, get out of it. Get out of it. Say, but love will conquer all. No, it will not. And the Bible says, and I know I'm 
I, I'm stepping away a little bit here, but I feel an anointing. <laughs> the, the, the Bible says, who are you, oh, oh woman, that you, that you will save your husband? How do you know you'll save your husband, Paul says in Romans. And he says to the man, how do you know you'll save your wife? There's no guarantee. Hey, marriage is a long business. And you that are a Christian, the day's going to come. I don't care how in love you feel. You're going to have children, and you're going to want to take those children to church. If you marry an unbeliever, they're going to rise up. They, they're going to rise up and say, I'm not going to church. Why church? I don't even believe in that. And when the thrill is gone, and you've been married a while, and the love has kind of cooled and gotten into mellow yellow or whatever, and you're kind of just cruising through life and taking care of things, and suddenly you realize, I marry somebody that does not have my faith, does not love my Jesus, does not want to raise our children the same as me, and it's going to matter. So you may be in love. You got in it. Get out of it. If you're dating an unbeliever, drop them tonight. <laughs> oh, I couldn't hurt their feelings. They're going to hurt yours one day, but I'm going to stop right there. Solomon, if he could talk to us, if he could appear right here, he would say, Amen, Pastor Jeff. <laughs> what fellowship has light with darkness? That's what it says. Wow. Solomon, he, he married all these foreign women and they carried him into idolatry. This man, Solomon, the wisest man on the earth, reached the place, folks, where he built altars to Molech. And burn children in his red-hot hands. How does that happen? By running with the wrong people. With Solomon, a divided king, with a divided heart, left a divided nation. That divided nation split into the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom consisted of 10 of the 12 tribes, and it spiraled into such apostasy in no time that they were uprooted under God's judgment and marched away under the Assyrian captivity. They never had one righteous king, the northern tribes, Israel. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah lurched back and forth between good kings and bad and between obedience and apostasy, ultimately following its sister Israel into captivity. Seventy years later, after they'd been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, where they couldn't sing the Lord's song for the sorrow of their heart, they were freed from Babylonian captivity and given another chance under a succession of godly leaders, Nehemiah, Ezra, and others. Yet as always, decline set in again. It always did. By the time of Christ, the Jewish religion was completely bankrupt rife with hypocrisy. That's why Jesus was always calling the Pharisees and Sadducees hypocrites. He told them the truth. You preach it and you don't live it. Rife with hypocrisy and empty, vacuous religion. When the fullness of time finally came, Judaism was a dead religion of rite and ritual, form and ceremony, tradition and crushing legalism. There was no life in it. Now, we're going to look next time at how God shows the worst of times to bring forth the best of blessings. And I want you to understand with me. Can we stand up together tonight? 
God sent his son into the worst of times. And here's what I want you to leave with tonight. Here's all this dead, empty religion. The Gentile world was no better. The Gentile world was steeped in Greek mythology and empty religions based on that mythology. And uh, there, was no, there was no hope. And then in the fullness of time. Listen, can I tell you that God, I believe, delights in coming into the worst of times and showing himself God. That's why I believe the church is about to see the greatest harvest the church has seen in decades. I really believe that. The church is about to see a harvest. Why? Because this is, this is getting dark out there, folks. It's becoming the worst of times. We're in an ethical, moral, spiritual spiral down. And God doesn't just sit there and say, oh, well, what can I do about it? No, God often in history has moved in the very worst of times. And I'm believing God to give us a harvest that, that, listen, that what we saw this weekend, people coming in, no chairs, people in the overflow room, that it's just the beginning. Because as it gets dark out there, they come knocking on the door of the church saying, do you have any bread? And we say, yes, we've got bread. We've got the bread of life. We've got the bread of hope. We've got the bread of joy. We've got the bread of Christ. So let's pray for that right now, can we? Lord, we just thank you right now that you have delivered us from infancy, delivered us from that old Mosaic law. And you have brought us into the faith in Christ Jesus and the liberty of the sons of God. And Lord, we thank you that as we have come into that liberty, that Lord, you are moving in our life. And you've got a plan. And I pray, Lord, that you will not let us miss that plan. To keep us in the epicenter of your will. Thank you, Lord God, for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, can we just lift our hands and let's worship him just for a second. Thank you, Lord. Here I am to bow here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. Do it one more time. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord.